Man, it's been, I think, four, maybe almost five years since I've stepped foot into the, the beautiful Onatara medicine up here. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. And every time I walk in here, it seems like right off the bat, I get hooked up to all these crazy tools and I got I got a tube in one arm. I got a tube in the other arm. You've already drawn a bunch of my blood, Avi. So uh, so my first question for you here is what the heck is, is going on here? I've got <laughs> blood coming out both arms and this weird machine off to my left. Can you explain this to people? Well, this is called the EBO device, um, EBOO, extracorporeal blood oxygenation and ozonation. So Ex extracorporeal blood oxygenation and ozonation. Yes. Okay. Okay. Um, one of those tubes is going out from you into the machine itself. Okay. The machine has two components. One component is where it receives the ozone. Okay. And the other component, after it's ozonated, it goes up upstream into that filter that's off to the left, off to your left. That filter is is controversial in the sense that really when you if, if you if you ask ai to talk about ibu it only talks about the ozone component you mean literally like if you go to gpt and inquiry you talk what is to 4.0 gpt and you ask it to talk about ibu it only talks about the effect the positive effects of ozone okay <clears throat> that's because there aren't been there haven't been published studies as to what's found in the in the filter so there's a there's a debate going on in the community. Is it filtering anything? So I can tell everyone here now that there are credible studies that we've reviewed that show in the filter, when you study the filter after a treatment, you find a variety of things that you don't want in your body. You find bacteria, viruses, fungi, mold, and heavy metals. And you, do you do that with every procedure with the filter, or is this just something that, that researchers will do occasionally to see if the filter is actually picking anything up? Well, we, 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 we didn't do the testing. The okay. testing is done by third-party sophisticated groups. Okay. But we know after looking at all the data, and we presented the data at a course that I ran about a year or so ago uh, before the ACAM meetings, and um, it were very impressive data. So... They were also trying to find clues as to whether you could find the spike protein because it was the pandemic time. Yeah, but that couldn't be. It couldn't be documented. And what what's an ACAM meeting? ACAM is the I'm president of the oldest integrative society in the United States. It's it's going to celebrate its 50th anniversary in our next meeting in the spring of 2024. It's an it's it's the it's the group that brought chelation therapy to the United States. For you mean for ago. like heavy metals and toxins yes. and things like so that. So this is the group yeah. that brought it to the forefront. It's the group that will bring it again to the forefront because the second chelation study will will soon be published by the end of this year or the begin or Q1 of 2024. So there's a lot of so when we have our meetings, which draw very solid functional medicine and integrative medicine folks, mold experts, uh, experts in ozone, experts across the spectrum of all chronic diseases, uh, we also have another focal meeting, you know, focused meeting, and we focus this meeting on EBU. What's ACAM stand for? American College for the Advancement of Medicine. Okay. All right. Got it. So, so this controversial filter 
that the blood goes through. That's that's not even theoretically, but it sounds like based on research, filtering out right. bacteria, viruses, fungi, possibly mold, spike protein, etc. Yes. Okay. And then what happens to the blood after it goes through the filter? Well, then it returns back to you. So you can see if the camera could focus on it, uh, it or in the B-roll. And I'll, by the way, if you, if, you're, if you guys are listening and not watching, I'll put the video at bengreenfieldlife.com slash onatara, A-N-A-T-A-R-A. So go to bengreenfieldlife slash onatara because it's actually a pretty funky-looking machine and a very uh, a very well, slightly violent-looking protocol because there's, there's blood in a lot of tubes. But the, uh, the, the machine that you, were, that you were illustrating here, Avi, is off to my left. That's where the blood's getting ozonated. And no, then it the goes ozonate, to the filter? The ozonation is occurring below. After uh, it passes through the filter, that's when no, it gets No, before ozonated. the filter. Okay. Before right, the filter. gotcha. So before the filter, before the ozonation, the blood is darker red because it's I venous blood. Yeah. After it's ozonated and the O3 minus, which is what ozone is, binds to all the cells, red cells and white cells in the blood, it turns the blood brighter red. Because it's oxygenated. Can you tell by the color of the blood coming out of somebody when you first hook them up to this thing whether or not they're healthy or whether you, whether you'd be concerned? There are ranges of redness. Yeah. And if you if you can't transport, if you can't respond to ozone, then you're 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 very way off the the, the curve. Okay. So at the same time, you cannot tell a person's health from the color of their venous blood. So the darker your venous blood, it can be that you're extracting more oxygen in the arterial sector. You're just extracting more, and you can have darker blood. It doesn't mean anything negative. Why do they call it blood oxygenation and ozonation? What's the oxygen component? Oh, it's just the ozonation produces oxygen. Okay. All right. So, so both of those effects are happening in response to the yes. ozone. The ozone's cleaning and oxygenating well, at the same time. Ozone is a pro-oxidant, as you okay. know. It, it happens in seconds or milliseconds and then induces an antioxidant, anti-inflammatory, vasodilatory, uh, a membrane-stabilizing effect on the whole body that it comes in contact with. And does the level of ozone matter? Do you, do you select that carefully in terms of how much ozone you're exposing the yeah. blood to? So when we first started using these devices, this is the third one, uh, we, we bought our first device, and that was calibrated at a higher level of ozone and uh, there were other mechanical issues with the device, and that device had what I consider serious complications. So we stopped, we analyzed it, we understood what they were, and we realized that it was not, not for us. So then we went to the Malaysian group that, that really founded Ibu therapy about 25, 30 years ago. Like in the country of Malaysia? Um, the country of Malaysia huh. is, is the epicenter of Ibu technology. It's kind of random. Yeah, it's just. Huh. But I think it, it was, uh, uh, it may be an Australian doctor that moved there. Oh, I got you. Okay. So, but they have the most experience in the world. And we're catching up now because there are now, uh, you know, a few, uh, certainly more than a few dozen centers that are using it. Um, and so th these devices, this is the second iteration of that device, are exceptionally safe, but they're much lower in continuous ozone concentrations. So when you're using a single, the last time you were here, oh, four and a half years ago, you had a 10 pass. You had- Yeah, I remember that. 10- That's different than this. 200 cc 
uh, amounts of blood ozonated, not continuously, it was sucked into the bowl. We then ozonate it and then give it back to you 10 times. 10 times, like all the 10 So that's pass. a certain concentration, and we used the highest concentration, the highest gamma, so to speak, and that's the, 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 that's the, the way we, we measure the concentration. So we use 70 gamma on 200 cc, you come up with a calculation. The amount of ozone in this is smaller, but the effect is larger because it's continuous. Okay. It's a continuous flow. It's continuously probably flowing two-thirds of, uh, of, your, of your blood volume. Now, just in case the doctor's listening to this and they're interested in this, in this protocol for their clinic, what's the name of the machine from Malaysia or the brand? Are you allowed to say? Uh, no, no, I don't even yeah. uh, know what it is, but we'll we'll It's we'll just the Malaysian you. one. Just yeah. just Google Malaysian Ibu. I'm, I'm sure you'll right. find and it. Right, and then it's, it's really it's really the the art is in the tubing and in the filter. The what choosing do you mean? of the tubing because the the tubing it, it's having a smooth treatment as you're having right now is a function of flow, and and the f the flow has to be proper and and consistent, even though placement of the vein is not consistent and 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 your your vein valves are not consistent and eventually coagulation isn't consistent so we we have a certain level of um, of of modification that's built into the tubing size and then more importantly uh, into the filter the filter itself has to be ozone resistant can't be can't be damaged by ozone so you yeah. have to be cautious as to the name of the of the filter how big of an issue is that in in this whole like you know iv medical treatment industry where you know people are cowboying off all over the place and you know in random clinics and getting these these type of ivs done in terms of the type of things that might wind up in the blood from the tubing or from the machining is that an issue you think with microplastics and things like that i've yes, always wondered it clearly is but yeah. with with ozone in particular um if it's not ozone resistant, you will deliver um, byproducts of the tubing into the body. Interesting. Now, what's the bucket on the floor over here? Well, that's the effluent, and, and the effluent is is supposed to be fairly clear, uh, and it's uh, it's considered to be a byproduct. And when you test the byproducts, you you have a concent uh, more concentration of heavy metals and. So that that bucket on the floor is different than the filter. It's catching something different. Yes, it, it's it's uh, catching what's what's gone through the filter, and that's called the affluent. Effluent, effluent, e with an e. And what kind of stuff would you find in the effluent? You find the, the similar types of things that that are in the uh, that are in the filter, except in the fil the filter is made up of millions of microfilaments. And when you snap, when you cut those microfilaments and you test them, you, you're much more likely to find higher concentrations. So you tested my blood before we started this procedure. Yes. Would you be able to tell from that test you did on my blood whether I've got bacteria and yeast or viruses or things that this ozone would be treating? Or would it make more sense to take that effluent and, like, send it off to a lab and test that? Well, uh, what we did do just is the... The audience hasn't seen it. We did take a, a little tiny bit of your blood, and you're we, welcome. <laughs> and we put it on. We we did a dark field microscopy 
to look at um, the, the shape of your red cells and so on. They're quite healthy, as I told you. But what's going on in the plasma? Uh, is there um, a biofilm in the plasma? Is there uh, excess fibrinogen in the plasma? Is there extra things that will clog the microcirculation up? And yours was pristine, as I told you. Do you do that before all of your ozone treatments? Before any of the EBU treatments, yes. And what happens after? Do you ever do a, a live blood oh, yeah, cell analysis done, after? We've, we've done. We've done. That's how we do them. Does it look and different? We, sh we show them a massive difference. Really? Yes. Interesting. So, can you steel man the uh, the blood cell analysis? Because I've heard some people say, "Oh, it's inaccurate," or you know, that, that's dumb that you're trying to look at blood cells on a slide. Like, do you ever hear stuff like that? Well, I can tell you as a as a formally trained pathologist that that's very naive. Not that's very naive kind of uh, statement to make. There's an enormous amount of expertise that goes into reading dark field microscopy, and you can make a myriad of different diagnoses. But looking at the shape of red cells is exactly what the machines do every day at LabCorp a million times. Yeah. But sometimes you have to have an overlay of someone looking at it themselves. And, and why, why do they call it dark field? Because uh, it's not using stains, and it, it has uh, the light source is, is indirect. So okay. you're looking at it in a way where, where you can best visualize the cells and the plasma. What else did you test when you took my blood? Uh, we tested, uh, well, there's two things, two major categories. One is something that you've had before, which was I, I, I knew you from, this is four or five years ago, super, super, super healthy guy. Yeah, and I'll link to that initial podcast and, we did. And biohacking yeah. guy. So I, I, I surmised that you had no evidence of acute, you know, the standard inflammatory markers the yeah. C-reactive protein and so on. I, I, I surmise that. Yeah. But yeah, that probably we're wasn't smart. more interested in, if you're interested in longevity, you have to deal with the chronic immune system, mm -hmm. um, which is not measured by the C-reactive protein. So we go to the complement cascade, that's complement with an E, and the best measure for chronic disorders like biotoxins, like mold, Lyme, uh, viruses, uh, uh, occult tooth infections, uh, those things that are not evident to a person until it's late. Uh, well, your C4A level, which is the, the complement marker that we use more most frequently. For chronic inflammation. Yeah, we also use C3A, but, but C4A is the most common one, uh, came up, I think it was four or five times elevated. So it suggested that you may be exposed from mold from your travels. We know you don't have mold in your home, but you probably capture mold uh, in, in- Oh, notoriously uh, found in Airbnbs and hotels and you know front load washers and all, all sorts of yeah, things people yeah. experience on a regular basis. But right. the, uh, the, um, the, the, the blood test that you did for these inflammatory markers, you'll often hear people say, well, CRP might be elevated if you exercised hard the day before or no, something like that. So like if I'd have lifted weights or ran, would that also right. Except, artificially elevate those? You no, know, they would, uh, yeah. and they can. And there's no way to disprove it. But the, the other markers, to get to the other thing, so you look at uh, other markers for oxidative stress, mm -hmm. that's not good. So you look at ferritin, which is a, a classical iron marker, but when it rises in, in, a, in a normal ma man or woman, 
it's really an oxidized iron, which is rust. Yeah, like rusting your body from the inside out if your your ferritin levels are too high. That's correct. Which can be concerning because there's a lot of, I know especially women out there who are taking both ferritin and iron. And from what I understand, if there's things like a, like an imbalanced copper ratio, not a lot of that is winding up in the cells. You can develop like a like a like an induced hemochromatosis from something like supplementation. So m- most of our patients that have elevated uh, ferritin don't have hemochromatosis. They have oxidative stress that's out of control. Hmm. And then you could also get some indirect information from using oxidized LDL. You could say, if I'm oxidizing my iron, maybe I'm oxidizing my lipids also. Yeah. So then you say, you put the package together. And you say, well, maybe I'm not really repairing well at night. I'm not detoxing properly at night. And you could measure homocysteine levels and say, do I have enough magnesium? Do I have enough B vitamins to repair, to, to do my appropriate level of methylation at night? And if I don't, you're more likely to be oxidatively challenged and then most folks are not walking around with antioxidants that are sufficient to handle their oxidative load so they may be particularly your group they may be pushing themselves and you know using nad and using other things that produce more energy the question is what when you produce more energy you're also producing more reactive oxygen species and do you have enough of a buffer to capture those and, and buffer them in your body. So, so ozone, for example, the few people that, that, that feel fatigued after ozone treatment, because ozone is exceptionally safe, let's make yeah. it crystal clear here. We've done it tens and tens of thousands of cases here over the last 12 years. But if you feel fatigued afterwards, that means that that oxidative burst was too much to be handled by your antioxidant stores at that moment. So would it be a good idea based on that before you use ozone to take antioxidants? Well, no. (laughs) Uh, To a certain extent, you want the oxidative burst to to be unencumbered. Yeah, I was going to say, because like with exercise, if you take antioxidants, it'll blunt some of the the beneficial hormetic response. And that's the hormesis is the one I want to get into uh, a lot more in detail with you today. But you're right. So you don't want to do that. But at the same time, you want to give an antioxidant it's sort of counterintuitive. You say, I have a pro-oxidant, and then why would I give an antioxidant? Well, because the way it manifests the majority of its beneficial effects is by activating our own antioxidant systems. So you, you, okay. you give it a little bit more, and typically we give glutathione intravenously, and people just feel great afterwards. So theoretically, you'd get the ozone, you would possibly get a clue based on that and even verifiable data from the blood testing that you are in a pro-oxidative state and might have a higher antioxidant requirement but rather than using antioxidants before an oxidative event like ozone right. you would then just know that you need to weave those into your daily routine on a more regular right. basis so let me tell you the poor man's test for what are my antioxidant stores all right it's an it's an old story and, and you take we take the, the one of the be- one of the best vitamin C preparations as a powder. There's a few. We happen to in the office. We use Perk P E R Q U E. He's got a very nice powder. It's three grams per teaspoon. Is this like a Whole Foods vitamin C type of source? Yeah. It, yeah. It, yeah. So, uh, well, nothing is Whole Food based vitamin. This is a sodium ascorbate. Okay. But it's it's as good as it gets. It's not vitamin C. It's not like eating an orange. I'm sorry, but 
but to get to high levels. So you take three grams, one teaspoon put in water and drink it. 20 minutes later, another three grams. 20 minutes later, another three grams. Why do you split it up? Well, because that's the way the that's the way it's been done. I, I don't think because we don't know how much you really need. Now, when you saturate your vitamin C receptors of your body, you activate the CFTR receptor, the cystic fibrosis translocator receptor in your gut. This is the, the same thing that turns on when you get cholera diarrhea. It's okay. like a water faucet. Yeah. So you have this sudden urge to run to the bathroom. You can't do this on the street. You have to do this at home. And then you just poop. You have your watery diarrhea movement. And that's the number, that's the level of antioxidant, that's the level of grams of vitamin C that was required to meet your antioxidant load at that moment in time. So oh, who, that, that I is think definitely the, pri a poor man's the, test. the prize here was won by someone who, who needed 120 grams. The next one was 54 grams. I mean, so you don't. That's a lot of vitamin that's a, C. That, that's a tremendous. And if they are, have to take that much vitamin no, C, they, yeah, you, don't, you can't take that much because you'll want to poop all that, the time. That would that would indicate that they were in a state of 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 oxidation of inflammation. These folks both had serious uh, autoimmune disorders. Yeah, but the lesson was, you know, one gram of emergency is not going to help you. Yeah, you know, you have to layer in glutathione, resveratrol, quercetin, alpha lipoic acid. Now you can. So that's a rare case. The, for, for those people in your audience in particular, in my patients, I say, we need pro-oxidation. It's mandatory to, for, for generation of ATP. And for wound repair in particular, we need pro-inflammatory cytokines to walk around and do their job. We just don't need, we don't need to overdo it. Yeah. So the folks that come in with two suitcases into the office, uh, two suitcases now, and they have about a hundred different supplements. Yeah, there's a lot of overlap, but let's say there's 30 or 40 different pathways, of which there are six antioxidant pathways. I say that's not a coherent answer because you're you don't know whether you're overtreating, undertreating. You just don't know where you are. So then we go through a large set of uh, of of, of laboratory data. We do a lot of labs here. Um, all, all the patients will complain about that. And so we say, here are the validated biomarkers of longevity. There, there are a few that all of us know that there are more. You, I'm sure, have your, your guesses to which ones, but there's hemoglobin A1C, of course, the, on the blood sugar side. Vitamin D is probably the most significant one that's unappreciated by the society and by certainly by the government. Right. Um, certainly uh, certain atherogenic risk parameters too, like triglyceride to HDL right. ratio or APOB. Yeah, yeah. well, but yeah, that, th those have been validated. Um, but even ferritin has been validated as a marker of oxidation. And homocysteine is a validation of, has been validated for longevity because of its effect on methylation. So we have some, and then uh, the other thing that I always forget to say, being alkaline has been validated to increase your lifespan. So urine pH, early urine pH, the first morning pH, if it's not between six and a half and seven and a half, 
then you're, you're, you've been acidic the whole night, and then you're making 25% less protein. So if you use a pea strip in the morning, yeah. one of these urine alkaline strips, I, I actually I found a company called, a, I think it was Vivu last year that tests a whole bunch of stuff on the urine, and you hold it up to your phone and get an analysis, and it does the alkalinity as well. Okay. But you want 6.5 to 6.7 if you're doing a morning six, alkalinity. 6.5 to 7.5. So 6.5 so six, six, five six, five to 7.5. 6.5 five five. to 7 is, is, is really uh, perfect. And above 7 or 7.5, that would indicate uh, elevated acidity. Yeah, yeah. And a lot of people will Al- hear that. Elevated alkalinity. Acidity yeah. is down. Or, so if most of us I'm are running sorry, around I'm sorry, elevated alkaline, five. yeah. Most of us are running around between 5 and 5.5. Wow, so very acidic. Yeah, what do you think about the people who will hear that and go out and buy one of these alkaline water generators and you know do again the whole alkaline diet and everything uh, versus enabling the kidneys to naturally adjust the pH well, balance? I think that's a tremendous marketing uh, um, coup by an industry that's running out of ways to sell water because it's neutralized immediately in the stomach. And if you have if you want to invest in a water system, then get to a reverse osmosis system yeah. and take out the the crap in the water. But what, what would you do if someone's acidic? If, if they are peeing in the morning and it's like below 6.5? Well, I, I, yeah, I'd probably start with something as simple as giving them some water with lemon and some a pinch mm-hmm. of salt, and, and uh, then you, you move up to to uh, um, um, a- apple cider vinegar. That'll confuse a lot of people who think lemons and apple cider vinegar are acidic because they taste kind of acidic. But they induce an, an acidic, they induce a, an alkaline yeah. reaction for yeah. the body. Yeah, I was hoping you'd say that. That's what a lot of people don't realize. Technically, that's, that's a, those like, are alkalizing it's like foods. ozone. ozone. I'm, why are you giving... Why does the FDA think that ozone is a, is a dangerous thing? Because they, they read a line that says it's pro-oxidant. Yeah. And so, well, that's what happens in a millisecond. So as soon as you drink your lemon water or you take your, your um, uh, other remedies, it's instantaneous. And then the, the body responds to it instantaneously. So the net effect is alkalinity. You said that you're, you're a fan of hormetic stressors. Yeah, so the concept that everyone's got to understand, because you can mess up if you're just going to Google everything on your own. You know, if you're listening to you, then you, you already have protection because you've, you've, you know, you've done so much and so much good for the society, in my opinion. That's why, oh. I, first of all, oh. I, I love having you over. Thank you. There's, there's a lot of, there's a lot of grumpy people years. sitting in ice baths because of me. But. I know, I know, and I'll talk about that in a minute as a positive thing, too, but a little twist to it. But the, the concept that, listen, we come... F- I've been doing this for 40 plus years, okay? How did chemotherapy start? Chemotherapy started because somebody found that one, uh, one child with, uh, in the 50s, one child with le- leukemia responded to nitrogen mustard, okay. And so when that person died, the, the, the oncologist, the, mo- the most famous oncologist ever, uh, doubled the dose on the next patient and then quadrupled the dose on the next patient. So if one X is good, 4x must be better that's the concept of traditional medicine per se but it doesn't the body doesn't work that way so the hormetic effect the hormetic effect is this curve that's going up and you can be too you can have such a low dose of something that it's irrelevant uh, or such a high dose that it it induces negative side effects Mm -hmm. so for ozone for example if you went to you're on now six uh, gamma, right? Well, now we're down to four. Okay. Being the level of ozone that's o- pumping ozone into my body right now. Yes, right now. So if you went up to 12, 
you would already induce blood clotting and, and a reaction that's actually happening here but also happening in your body. You'll be producing microclots given the, the, the way it's given in this particular setting. The Europeans max out their ozone concentrations at 40, 50 gamma. And in the U.S., we routinely use 70, and it's been safe. But the reason they don't do it is they're more interested in hormetic effects than we are here. We're more, uh, we're more cowboys here in the United States. But if you think, look at heat, look at cold, look at caloric restriction. Exercise. Exercise in particular, you can do way too much. Now, when you compete nationally, period, you're a D1 athlete or you're a competitive athlete, you're doing too much. Yeah, the, uh, that's the only way to compete. You're doing too much for health. I mean, for that, that's a trade-off, right? It's, just, it's glory versus health, or that's career right. versus so, health when so, it comes to, to so, professional exercising or fitness. That's right. Yeah. So then, you you may have to pay back some 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 things later. Yeah. But well, I mean, same. it's like our mutual friend, Dr. David Minkoff. I mean, I I certainly know that he's aware of the fact that doing you know hundreds of Ironmans or however I think we've done like forty some yeah, over the right. over the past you know I don't know how many dozen of years. It's not necessarily the best thing for your body, but it is a pretty cool Mount Everest to climb. You know, and it's yes. inspiring for people. And and so you know, I think you just have to accept the fact and not fool yourself into thinking it's actually good for you. Last night at dinner, you and I were talking about how, you know, I have high calcium scan score and accumulated plaque, most likely due to cardiac stress from excessive endurance stress, exercise. Yes. And James O'Keefe has shown that with some of his research on arterial stiffness and this whole law of diminishing returns or increased mortality with, with excessive exercise. So regarding uh, hormetic stressors then, you do you advise those and pro program them into your patient's protocols? Oh yeah, so I think when you look at master, master, so we know what drives, so over the last 20 years, we now know the genomics of aging and Dr. Peter Attia gets that into that in detail in his good book, in his longevity book. And, and get into the, the pathways that are fundamental, right? Well, some, some, some easy interventions um, are fundamental. I sort of like, it can do multiple things, right? So ozone is one of those. Um, NAD is the other classical example. It can have multiple effects on energy cycle, which then also have effects on longevity. Yeah. But cold immersion, heat with uh, the saunas, um, and exercise have global impacts. Just what was it you were going to say about cold? You said you had your twist on well, cold. Well, I think, I think that I think you probably know better than I what you think is the, um, the, uh, the ideal timing of cold. Yeah. But I know that people are different from yeah. one another. And, um, and your archetype would handle cold easier than my archetype. So I, I may have a shorter duration. Are you to referring to like effect. the constitutional typing? Yes. Like the, the discussion we had last time? And right. by the way, if you want to wrap your head around that, Avi and I talked about constitutional typing and your diet and your lifestyle based on whether you're, you run hot or run cold quite a bit. But yeah, I, I think you're right. I, I would say that there are definitely some people who get too much sympathetic stress in response to cold, too much of an adrenaline norepinephrine response and almost right. like an overtraining response to cold. But yeah, I personally 
think too many people do like these long 10, 20 minute ice yeah, baths. To me, like, that's too long. My, my protocol is frequent and short. So I have an ice tub outside the front door of my office and I jump in that thing like four or five times a day and I'm in there for 20 seconds to a minute just for these brief cold forays throughout the day. And I don't do a lot of the long shiver your butt off for well, that's you know, 20 what I minutes wanted in a cold plunge. That, that, that would be my opinion too. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I, I think that every so occasionally, especially for like chronic pain, fibromyalgia, et cetera, that these, you know, you, you see these polar bear swimmers right out here in the San Francisco Bay and lots of stories of people who eliminate chronic pain and, and joint issues through longer cold soaks. But even those, I'd see the people successfully doing those, they'll like go for a cold swim like once a week. And everything right. in between are these short cold exposures, kind of like exercise. You might have one hard workout session per week, but then everything else is just kind of tune-ups. And I think that's a, that's a much, much better way to do right. things. It's more sustainable, too. Yeah. So the question is, one in 5,000 people <clears throat> live to 100. Okay. We now know their genetic profiles. And more so than when I first started medicine a long time ago, we know that just like in the beginning, we always thought that the uh, the centenarians only lived in Japan, only lived in the Caucasus, and only yeah. lived in Loma Linda, Sardinia. Yeah. yeah. But now we know there's some people living in the inner city too. And yeah. one thing we always knew about them is that they were maybe happier, they may be socially very uh, open, and they may be eating organic, you know, organically, but they don't necessarily live very healthy lifestyles. They some of them, you know, smoking cigars. The oldest yeah. woman in the world was smoking a cigar every day and drinking, uh, you know, having alcohol every night. So, yeah. so and a lot of times it's not just wine. We're talking like so scotch, then, whiskey, gin. Yeah, yeah, everything. I mean, whatever, whatever made them happy. Okay, so that's it's not because they lived a unique lifestyle. So then you say, okay, I have some genetic pathways that you probably are well compensated for, but my most profound observation in my entire 40 plus years was when I first got out of medical school I did a residency and chief residency in pathology and I was blessed I went to Einstein in the Bronx and I was blessed by having some of the oldsters that were chief of, of pathology when Einstein was still alive oh, they wow. used to come in once a week just for fun and they used to look around the, the center and so on. so I, I showed them an aorta of a 60-year-old person who obviously passed away, uh, and it was moderately severely affected. And then I showed him another aorta of a 104-year-old person looking identical. It looked identical. And then and then I, I, I didn't say anything about it. And they just, they, so they analyzed it, and they said, oh, these are, they, they look, this is classical, classical. I said, but this one, is from a 104-year-old. It looks identical to the 60-year-old. So they said, oh, let's, f let's have some fun with it. Let's, uh, let's look at the histochemistry. Let's look at the cell types. Let's look at it under the electron microscope, and let's do that. Let's have a, a fun time with this because we want to know if they're completely the same or not, or are the cell types different and so on, are the pathways different. And after months of all the data points coming together, they're identical. One of the, one of the people develops the full-on bore thing that ultimately kills them at the age mm -hmm. of 60, 
the other one has the full-on uh, disease 40 years later. But it's the same exact pathology, the same pathways, just delayed 30, 40 years. So to me, that was, I thought that was, it opened my brain to this concept that um, if you have, if we could understand that, that gap, that 40-year gap, 30-year gap, we'd be able to have the rest of us, the rest of the 4,999 of us who are unfortunate enough to have these pathways up front and center because and with the genomics today, it's, it's not difficult to organize that, that we'd be able to make a real serious dent in, in our lifespan because the average centenarian doesn't really have any serious medical problems until the age of 93. Whereas the average person passing away in the late 70s is already sick in the 60s, in their 60s. That's interesting. Do, do you actually do that kind of testing on your patients? Like, do you do genomics testing to see what yes. someone's risk is? Yes. And there's actual markers that you can pull up that literally translate to yeah, so for example, increased lifespan despite lifestyle. Right. So we know what they are. You know, they're, they deal with, with senescence. They they deal with uh, uh, with uh, insulin sensing, uh, with glucose metabolism, uh, cell repair mechanisms, um, and are you pro-inflammatory in your genomics? Do you tend to be on the pro-inflammatory side? Do you hmm. have uh, mutations of TNF alpha, IL six, IL one receptor? Are you in that direction or not? Are you protected against autoimmunity versus not? So. So, th so this is not a single mode, a single or, or, or a single gene that you're looking at. Instead, no. it's a cluster of genetic factors that would dictate that the fewer of them that you present, right. the more equipped you likely are yeah, for lifespan. Because, for example, let's say you have multiple. There are multiple detoxification pathways, right? But our epigenome is now bombarded with toxificants, which just completely bombarded. So, if you have the normal amount of and you may have a little snip in, in the glutathione pathways, for example, so you don't have your, your full ex expression of your master antioxidant and detoxificant, then you're gonna run into trouble faster. Yeah. Now everybody's got heavy metals, everybody does. Everyone has toxificants, pesticides. I mean, if you wanna measure it, uh, you can. It doesn't help me that much. Um, in, in the treatment because we use the heavy metals as, 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 the, most, as the most tested and the, and the most true uh, types of data points for the last 50 years. If you get rid of them, you will, you will feel better. You will have less coronary disease. You'll have less dementia. Yeah. When you get rid of them, but and and you you from a heavy metal standpoint, because we we had fish last night, right? And like I ordered a poke bowl for lunch today. You don't you don't totally avoid them from a food chain standpoint, but do you yourself engage in regular chelation therapy? Yes. Like ozone. Well, ozone is makes chelation more efficient. Okay, but it, it wouldn't count as chelation. It doesn't count as chelation. Yeah, that's right. What do you do for chelation? Well, you use the different formulas, but you use an, uh, a chelating agent like EDTA. Okay. And you chelate it out. It takes 45 minutes, an hour, and, and you do it. You what's, know, that, what's that mean, 45 minutes to an hour well, to chelate the IV. it out? You can okay. do it orally. Oral, oral chelation works, mm -hmm. but it takes a much longer time. Okay. Yeah. All right. 
Okay, so by the way, this, this ozone, if they're, you're watching the video, you'll see that they've pulled the tubes out of my arm. And all the blood's gone back into me at this point, right? Right. Okay. And what's that bucket look like? I can't quite see it without craning my neck, oh, but did it accumulate? Good. Can we get a picture of that on the camera? Well, the less so of that, it, that's the less the, of that's it the you effluent. have, the, the cleaner you are. So that's good. I don't. Know, it doesn't look like I have very much, and it's all clear. No. And and the yeah, heavy I mean. metals would uh, the heavy metals would have a color. Yeah. Okay. And then what's this test that she's doing right now on my on my fingertip? She's going to give us this, the 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 blood sugar. Why did my blood sugar go up so much during that treatment? It was at 73, and now it's at 111. Oh, because you, you had your, uh, you had your uh, perfect amino bars. Oh, that's right. You did give me a bar because you don't want your blood sugar to be low during no, the No, you don't because uh, um, the rapidity of, of, uh, of the oxidative burst is, is muted by having a, a normal blood sugar level. And this clear glass slide that this she is, just held up to the blood, that's, this, that's a this, repeat of a live blood cell? Yes. And you just look at that under a microscope. Yes. And you showed it to it directly sends it to your phone. Yeah, I, I have the shots on my phone, but uh, we, I just took a photograph of the of the microscope. And okay. I can, I can send it to you. I can send your photo. Yeah, we'll put it in the show notes at, at BenGreenfieldLife.com. Yeah, because you're you're clean. There's nothing to. Yeah. I can show yeah. you some things that before and after, uh, and I can send them to you the before and after that you can clearly see, the difference between what the average what many of us are walking around with because we're not we're not we don't have a regular sauna routine we don't have a regular exercise routine we don't have a regular caloric restriction routine or time restricted time restricted eating yeah. routine we don't do the x y and we we're not on any oh i take a few vitamin yeah. c tablets once in a while how come i had my how come i needed a, a bypass surgery i mean i eat a banana every day I mean that that's not going to work anymore. Yeah, it's just not, yeah. Not a I, I have I have my oatmeal, my whole grains. So the <laughs> it's it is kind of funny though because I I'm glad my blood is looking good and my effluent is looking good because I just literally got back from two weeks of cycling in Italy, eating cake for breakfast, gelato for lunch, and pasta for dinner. But I was also riding my bike like 30, 35 miles a day in the sunshine, you know, thirty thousand steps a day, and so I was I was. I was fine from a caloric standpoint. I think I lost like seven pounds. Now, what's this uh, this IV that they just put into me after finishing this is it a, up? It, this is a, it says energy on it. That yeah, must be a, good. It's a nutritive. It's a complex nutritive drip. What's that mean? Uh, it, it, it has vitamin C at, at its core and relatively low dose. And then it has probably 20 micronutrients in it. Low dose enough to where I'm not going to be doing the diarrhea test today? No, no, no. Okay. No. <laughs> well, we just took a little break here after ozone. And so uh, before we get into these new needles that I have in my arm, Avi, yes. what, was, what was that? What, why'd you have me collect my urine in the bathroom just now? Well, we wanted to rule in or rule out whether you had um, mold biotoxin in your urine. So it's a standard test for mold, and um, it'll test for ochratoxin, aflatoxin, gliotoxin, a few, a few half a dozen other mold species, which are the most toxic, and then we'll match it to to what the new level of the complement cascade number is. How often if, is it that when you do a test on some of these days, they're presenting with high levels of these toxins? I think um, the the estimate would be in the general population that around two thirds of us are walking around with toxic mold in our wow. systems. Um, in, a, in an environment which is uh, wet and cold, like San Francisco is, 
So it comes primarily from water damage. You can have a, a leak in in uh, in the desert, <laughs> you know, in 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 um, Salt Lake, in uh, Phoenix, and still get mold uh, toxicity. Except there's few a few parameters that have to be important. One is, am I genetically susceptible to having once I can, once I see mold or once my body is exposed that I can't get rid of it on my own? And you have that genetic susceptibility, and so do I. Really? Now, I, I didn't have a single mold symptom in my body until I was in my late 60s. Wow. And I have a genetic susceptibility. So it was sort of like a, an area under the curve. And then it reaches like a threshold? Yeah, and then you say, something's funny, something's wrong, and I'm just not sure what. Uh, weight is difficult to take, you know, to, to lose more more easily than it's more difficult than before. <clears throat> Sleep is a bit patterning is a little bit off. You measure it; it's the same type of number that you had, and then you have to use uh, binders. Yeah, these charcoal or binders. ozone, right? Ozone could also again, ozone, make a dent. Yeah, but again, the the real the real direct approach is to take a binder. Okay. Gotcha. Um, and it's not super difficult; they're tasteless, but it's black. It's like black water. We call it. Uh, and you take it every day for, usually for the t- a long treatment time. you call black water. I mean, it's it's charcoal. Basically, okay. it's a Quicksilver makes the number one product. The okay, uh, yeah, the, I have that product. The ultra yeah. binder, and um, we you use it, and you will sort of feel uh, when you have mold in your body, you'll feel something going on on the CNS side after you take uh, a dose, but it's mild. Yeah, and then eventually you will feel better. And do you recommend combining a binder like that with protocols like sauna, uh, coffee enema, trampolining or lymph circulation, the type of things that that help once that binder is in the system for the liver to actually process and remove everything via the skin, via the stool, et cetera? It's as as efficient as as the binder. So, um, but the binder is is unique uh, in its, ability to attract the mold out uh, at the same time you have to be able to be pooping yeah because otherwise it just recirculates yeah but, okay but but the sauna the exercise the trampolining and the sauna is probably the most single most important one when someone does a urine test like that how quickly do you get results back oh we should have the your results back by the middle of next week okay interesting well that'll be that'll be fascinating to delve into and by the way I will, i'll publish all these results and photos and things like that on the website if you guys want to take a look uh, i'll put it all at bengreenfieldlife.com slash onatara all right so now I've, I've still got this energy iv these b complexes going into my body with the vitamin c but now there's like a is this like a laser in my other arm yes. right now so uh, here m- my goal here when i started this around 12 years or so ago was to try to find fundamental ways of uh, of activating our energy cycle and oxygen is one that's why ozone has such an important role uh, nad is nad it's a separate it's a separate system but light energy or, or photomodulation as it's called is something that's underserved i mean the public doesn't know very much about it and uh, this is the the device on your left it's called the weber laser and it's from um, north of frankfurt in germany wow, it's quite the machine um and it's got uh it's 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 probably the best studied 
uh, laser device and there's two two or three different components to it you have the the different frequencies typically between 500 and a thousand nanometers but you have red uh, blue green yellow and uh, UV light and infrared so you'll get all of those so in what we call a rainbow uh, a rainbow IV session uh, and it in interacts with things that have uh, a foot it photomodulates, so it interacts with the yellow in the vitamin C and the magnesium and the drips. So it activates the 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 energy drip more more. So the way this works, like right now, it's plugged into one different light, and then you'll shift it to a different light. Yeah, so and we'll get kind of fifteen minutes, fifteen minutes for each of the five, and it'll be over in an hour and fifteen minutes. Okay. And uh, we we try our best. To, to use this regularly in, in a few different populations. One is cancer populations, the tumor cells are typically sensitive to heat shock protein activation and heat shock proteins are activated by the laser. When you first went through medical school, did you think you'd be getting into all this kind of you know, lesser known uh, protocols <laughs> that, that you don't see a lot of doctors doing? Like, what, what do you think attracted well, you to all this? Well, I, I come from a a heavy European background. I was born in Israel, but my parents are European. Uh, there was no question that I would probably seek to, to do something like medicine because it was good. It was a good mm -hmm. thing for a good Jewish boy to do. Uh, I got into law school first, and I, when I found out what lawyers did, I said, no, no way. Uh, went to medical school and then really was on the outside looking in, saying everybody seems to really know what they want. And I'm just sort of going to observe things for a while. And, uh, and it took me a while to find a niche, but I wanted to do it in a European style. So the Europeans, the, the old German doctors, now this is after World War II, then they're not high on everyone's list, but they, they were always known for outstanding medical care. Um, and they trained in, in anatomy first. Okay. They, had, they had full really serious anatomical training. And then they also did a year of pathology. So that's why, why I, I got, I wanted to mimic that, even though I did three full years of pathology. But So I wanted to be a little bit different, but more old style, because I, I truly believe that my, my general practitioner actually you know, gave me a shot in my butt once for pneumonia, and and he actually came to the house, and I liked that idea. A shot in your butt for yeah, pneumonia. Yeah, what do you for mean? penicillin. He gave me a penicillin okay. injection, and it came to my house, and had a little bag, and uh, and th th that was all gone by the time I I went to medical school. Uh, that was not done anymore. So I wanted a little bit of the older flavor, and concept that something old was fundamentally not as good as something brand new uh, came into really is fundamental you know has been so fundamental in the last several decades in understanding how little genomics has changed the world it's going to change the world it'll take a long time uh, and how little um, uh, the the brand new technologies always may be incremental but they're not fundamental so so a lot of the a lot of the uh, uh, of of the reasons we ultimately use what we use is because they're completely safe. 
mm-hmm. that can be stacked easily. So you're going to be treated with five or six things, but they're all coherent and they're convergent with your systems. We're not just only detoxing you. We're not just only oxygenating you. We're not just only talk, trying to talk to, uh, um, to any individual organ. So, so then uh, I, I, when I ran a heart, so I was trained there, then I went to Yale for, for medicine and then cardiology at Hopkins. That was the, the pinnacle of my academic career. I stayed there for 12 years, published a lot mm. of work became an immunologist as well as a cardiologist and had a big lab and we were expert, the world's experts in myocarditis. Um, I mean, there may be some groups in Germany that will tell, tell me otherwise, but I think we were one of the best people in myocarditis. And we and what's we, myocarditis? Myocarditis is now in everyone's uh, tongue because of the, the COVID-induced myocarditis. Because COVID, we knew from the very, from the very minute that it came to New York that it, uh, the virus had a tropism, had a uh, magnetism to the heart. Okay, so uh, myocarditis would be like inflammation of heart tissue? Inflammation of heart tissue, in this case, due to a virus. It's not directly due to the virus. It's, it's, a, it's a reaction to the viral, gene, the viral proteins on, on the heart surface, on the heart cell surface, that then induces an autoimmune reaction. So the first paper I ever wrote to the ACAM members was on lookout for post-viral myocarditis, particularly in your kids and the college-age students, uh, and understand that it's going to go away, more likely, except when it doesn't, then it's very serious. So then, um, and so I was doing transplants, I was doing invasive cardiology, I was a catheterizer and so on, but I went to the top and I felt what it felt like, and that is out, an outstanding experience for anyone in any profession to go to the to the best and and, mm. and study with the best. But then it, w- it was time to move from Baltimore to the Bay Area because my wife was from here, and um, I ran a heart institute and the heart institute had global centers, big big data, big clinical trials, and um, we had a lot of centers in Germany. And when I went to Germany, I realized the hospitals were identical. But the pharmacies and the shops and the, and the towns were completely different. The pharmacies were run by equivalents of PhD pharmacists here, hmm. like PharmDs yeah. here. The, every pharmacist there was trained like that. And they were equally as trained in pharmaceuticals as they were in homeopathic and herbal medicine. And why is that important in a pharmacy? Because, you know, aspirin is not a pharmaceutical. Hello. <laughs> It's an herbal remedy, you know. The Kirk, you know, a lot of the anti-inflammatories, a lot, a lot of the fundamental chemicals, um, the sulforaphanes, the the phenols, the the ones that affect multiple pathways at the same time. It's not a targeted, single assay targeted development of a pharmaceutical entity that needs to target something to be very, very, very specific. More of a global impact. They're all they're all natural, so they understand that, and they understand that, so they don't have a problem of uh, of over uh, of over over prescribing antibiotics. There, they don't give antibiotics for viral hmm. illness. They give you ten, twenty different things that you can use. Um, so I had that experience, and and then I was still professor at I was made professor of medicine at UCSF, 
as an honor, as a privilege. And I took it and I taught for 16 years. Uh, mm. And then realized that none of my none, none of my cardiology fellows were listening to anything I talked about in integrative cardiology. They were just not interested because they were overwhelmingly doing the technical part, which is appropriate. But they wouldn't do something like order CoQ10 for someone with heart failure. They wouldn't. Mm. They wouldn't treat, you know, metabolic syndrome. They didn't even. They wouldn't want to understand what it was. So a few of them sent their patients to me. I thought this would become an integrative cardiology center, and that's what I thought when I first opened it up. But uh, they never got their patients back, so they stopped referring them to, to, to us. Why wouldn't so, doctor? Why wouldn't doctors like that just implement these same protocols themselves versus sending folks? To I you? think that that's the big that's the big problem that we see across every specialty. Um, it requires you. To, to learn new things, and I don't think that the doctors today have a problem with that, but they have um, a bias that their things are are much, much, much stronger, much better. And and if it's not the case, they, they don't want to go close to that. So sometimes they have a family urgency or an emergency, and they have to learn it through their mom, through their dad, through their children, and then they come over. Uh, but the the guys who the the women and men that come over frequently are anesthesia people, uh, ER ER docs, and family practitioners. Those are the three types of doctors that wind up beginning Be to migrate towards the type of practice yes, that yes, you have. Yes, and then dermatologists yeah. too, because they enter beauty, and, and beauty is from the inside out. You have to yeah. then figure it out, and and uh, and but the the gut doctors don't, and even though the gut biome, everyone knows about biome, and they they don't come over cardiologists don't come over because they're electricians they're plumbers they're doing what they need to do and they're doing it the best in the world but that's it they're is there not. an actual name for what you do is it just holistic wellness or i think it's called call it's it? called sometimes integrative medicine it's now the new name du jour is functional medicine okay Okay, yeah. got it. So what kind of patients do you actually see? Is this mostly people who are sick? Are these like the Bay Area anti-aging longevity enthusiast CEOs? these like celebrities or, or a yeah. mix of everything? So we, we enjoy the celebrities a lot and we enjoy the CEOs a lot. And you, you went to dinner with one of them last night. Um, and we, we, we like healthy people once in a while to break the monotony of folks. So this ultimately was supposed to be what I skipped in my story was that we, we then started the world's first nonprofit pharmaceutical company, which was for disease of poverty. So we had malaria, we produced uh, uh, the artemisinin and, and, and E. coli, and uh, we, we have the major, the major source of the major source of the, the anti-malarial drug in the world is now produced in the way that we, we, we produced it. No, with Sanofi Aventus. Is that hydroxychloroquine? No, this is artemisinin. Artesinin. Okay. Wormwood. Yeah. Yeah. Grows like weeds in my backyard. But no, no longer grows. Now it's in E. coli. So we genetically modify. We genetically... Do you have bacteria make artemisinin? Now. Now yeah. they do. And so Sanofi Aventus is now in charge of that. But we, we, we organize that and we, we have a, a new chemical entity for cholera, diarrhea, and some other diseases that we that we did. But... Um, but that took us all over the world into Asia, in South Asia in particular, studied with the gurus and so on. And 
had some more exposure to the different forms and realized that certain, like, you know, everyone knows that Ayurvedic medicine has archetypes. Everybody knows that. You know, mm-hmm. there's certain types, right? Yeah. So which type are you? Yeah, but, we talked a lot about that in our last podcast because yeah, you had me set up on a whole diet based on right. my, my constitution. Right. So the So the concept of here, as you know, we're not going to do one thing. We're gonna we're gonna we're gonna tackle the, the the toxic load that we're all exposed to in a in an elegant, safe but multi-layered approach. And Ayurvedic doesn't fit that. Uh, so the the Chinese versions of of archetypal medicines do. Mm-hmm. So they 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 do transcend different te- different uh, lineages. What do you mean by that? What what would be the main differentiating characteristic between I mean, like I, a I think Ayurvedic it was, and a Chinese approach? I, I don't know, but they don't. But Ayurvedic medicine doesn't play well with other with other kids in the sandbox. It hmm. just you're either going to go that way, and go and do do the best possible. Go to the Ayurvedic specialist. But when you start mixing pharmaceuticals and you start mixing you know, for serious illnesses, um, it, it doesn't, and you start using natural remedies like curcumin, resveratrol, alpha-lipoic acids, all these antioxidants and these master regulators, it doesn't work well. It doesn't work as well as it should. So either mm-hmm. you do that or or then you have to go to another form. So we tried it, and it just it didn't work well. So in my hands, it didn't work well. Yeah. Now, you talked about German medicine. There's a lot of these European biological medicine right. clinics, like Paracelsus is perhaps the most famous. There's right. another one I took a group on a fantastic health tour of for a couple of weeks out in the, the yeah. Swiss mountains called the Swiss Mountain Retreat. Are those any different than what you do here? Like, can they still do stuff in Europe that you can't do over here? No, no more. It's just the idea it's of, just, of it, medical the concept of you could also say traveling that, all that way and sitting on the airplane makes it feel more special. Well, I mean, they're good at it. Mm-hmm. You know, they also emphasize things that we're just coming to terms with now. They emphasize detoxification. They emphasize that the first the first doctor you see there is a dentist, because the hidden infections in the in the oral cavity are exceptionally common. Yeah, I interviewed a doctor uh, from over in that area, Germany, I believe, uh, Dr. Dom, and there is a big, bigger belief, at least over there, that disease begins in the mouth. A lot of times over here in functional medicine, you hear the disease begins in the gut. Arguably, the mouth is the gut, the beginning right. of the gut, but I think a lot of people don't realize that. I've, I've personally been doing a lot of work with a dentist in Phoenix who's done bacterial profiling of my right. mouth and does a lot of repeat labs and considers that a lot of disease, heart disease, Alzheimer's, etc., can be detected by bacteria in the mouth and also via things like silver sprays and oil pulling and different medical techniques and even biomechanical adjustments can be fixed by starting with the mouth and then moving down from there. I couldn't say it any better. <laughs> you said yeah. it very elegantly. Do you have Thank dentists you. that you work with here in San yeah. Francisco, so, so or do you do all that work yourself here also? No, no, we don't. We, we don't. Uh, we have the a, a stable of biological dentists is the, is the name. So the biological dentists can either handle yeah. the, the infected root canals, the infected uh, gums, and so on, but also then there's biological dentists that focus on the airway. Okay. Got it. Also, they're also called a holistic dentist, right? Right. Well, biological holistic mm-hmm. dentist. Now, what about, uh, you know, you, you, you talked briefly with me. I don't even know if we were if we were on air yet or not as you were drawing my blood about your ability to also get some early detection of cancer. Is that also something that you're well, testing that, for here? 
yeah well we've been very interested in that because the 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 first patient that uh when i first opened up that asked me their opinion was the first employee of the nonprofit that we ran and she was first diagnosed with stage four um uh, colon cancer um and said, what should I do? And I, and I said, well, I promise you I'll eventually we'll figure that out. I just didn't know. That was 15 years ago. Um, and and to, today, the field is now ready to be, to be completely changed. So we've known for years now, probably about 10 years here, of the concept of liquid biopsies. Liquid, liquid, biopsies. Bi liquid biopsies are the, the reality the fact that tumor cells that are in the body are spilled over into the blood circulation. Um, most people believe, the ones that have studied it for longer times than I have, is that the, circulatory, the circulating tumor cells predate when you can find the tumor in, in an image. That it's, it's one of the earlier findings. But I, I don't know whether that's true or not. I, I know that there's a, lot of, there's a lot of reasons to believe that that's the case. But it's, it's counterintuitive. You say, well, I, I, even if it was in the blood, maybe it has no, nothing to do with the, with, the, with the tissue itself. Maybe it's, they're unrelated. Well, they're not unrelated. The, 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 and in the blood, you can, you can divvy out the, separate out the tumor cells as well as the as the conductors. The conductors are called the tumor stem cells. You can culture them out and you can study their biology hmm. and you can study their sensitivities. And again, there's a, a whole world there, except to say that you do get a numerical value. Do you have them, yes or no? And if you have them, how, much, how, how many of them per unit of blood do you have? Well, that's generation one. And the other generation is, well, I I have right now that works right now as I have a tumor, so the, you know that they they run genomics on tu on tumors themselves. Mm -hmm. They run genomics to to express whether the immunotherapies, the newer version of chemotherapies that are targeting immune the immune systems, will which ones will be effective. So they take the the same amount of tissue as that. It's a slice on a slide study the, mut the DNA mutations there, and then look for those same mutations in the blood and, and then track it. So, for example, if you're on chemotherapy, why wait three months to get your PET-CT scan when you can get, get a blood sample every month or every, every, every three weeks to see whether you're going in the right direction? Namely, are, are your tumor-specific DNA that is in your tumor in your blood going down, the blood levels going down, because you know most people with traditional chemo have complications. Yeah, they're not easy to tell whether I'm getting better or not. So this is going to transform. So this is going to be phase two, and we're in it. So we're beta testing two of these companies, and they're allowing us to 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 draw the bloods as often as we please. And, and it's as simple as a blood draw. It's a, for, it for is a blood draw. Detection. It's a blood draw. Not yeah. only for cancer detection, but for cancer progression no, for, monitoring. This is for progression. So okay. for for the test we send off to Europe is for the detection and progression and, and biology. 
but in the future they'll be able to use it for detection but that's that's going to this is all going to go through FDA everything I'm talking about will go through FDA it's going to take its sweet time in the meantime um, the, the, before they get to pr the, before they get to detection which is the largest market um, they'll have to go through a lot uh, a lot more testing so, so right now, someone can't go in and do this cancer detection screening? No, you can only do the, the screening test uh, for the company that we send it off to Europe for. It's called the RGCC company, and you have to be a member and so on. But that's pretty widely known in the United States and widely known and also widely criticized because the oncologists don't believe in the test results. Now, because you can... You can have a number, and obviously, if if the number correlates to you having a tumor, then it's obviously it's true. But what happens when you have a number, but you can't find the tumor anywhere, and it tells you that it's lung, it tells you that it's colon, it tells you that it's it's prostate, it tells you. Yeah. So even before something like a full body MRI. That's or correct. Like so that the, the, you know, the full body MRIs are limited to three, four millimeters. So you can't. Always so anything smaller than that, it's not going to pick up, but a liquid biopsy could detect. That's correct. That's interesting. So this is going to be... seems like that could be this transformative. This is going to be transformative for, 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 the, for the entire industry, yes. yeah. but also for follow-up. And how long do you think we are out from these, these being widely available as testing protocols? I think it's going to be about... Well, there's another one coming in, coming forward um, uh, in, through FDA. It, it's going to be... What, it'll come in stages, but it'll be from one to three years. Yeah. Wow. Interesting. But it is very no interesting, and, and yeah. it's very specific. I mean, these are tumor-specific DNA mutations that are belong to me. Yeah, yeah, you know? wow. 